have him with us this morning. Ryan, come on up. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate that uh, introduction. Well, it is great to be with you all this morning. My wife Hannah and I are really uh, uh, thankful for you all's support of the ministry, for all the kind words that you all have shared with us uh, as we've been in this community a little bit over this summer. And it's also been really fun connecting with some, some old friends, some old family friends. I grew up in the area and went to Washington Christian, so it's always fun to see some old familiar faces. Uh, our scripture reading this morning is going to be from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13, and this can be found on page 966 in your pew Bibles. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the gift of your word. God, we need your word for life. We need it for strength. We need it to be able to endure in this life. We pray that you would enliven your gospel to us this morning, that you would make these words come alive to us that we can apply them to our lives this week. And we pray all this knowing that the work of your spirit uh, has been promised to us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So we've we've picked up this text this morning in the middle of the book of 2 Corinthians, and there are a couple of important themes in the book that I want to highlight a little bit that I think shed some important context for this text to help set the stage for what we've been looking at or what we'll be looking at this morning. So first of all, there are some uh, very influential people in Corinth who are casting doubts about Paul's ministry and his uh, co-ministers, Timothy and Titus. These preachers and leaders who have a different message than what Paul is preaching have gained a foothold in Corinth. They're apparently a lot more eloquent than Paul in their speaking. That's a, a high value for the people of Corinth, eloquence and speech. They have more powerful connections than Paul has, and they're very good at commending themselves. 
Apparently, they're very good salesmen for what they're trying to offer. And so we see here in, a, in verse 4, where it kind of looks like Paul's bragging about himself a little bit, but really all he's saying is that, look, I'm not going to try and puff myself up by giving some kind of eloquent speech or some flowery message to you all. The only thing I have to commend our ministry is the gospel that we preach and the fruit of the Spirit in our ministry. But one of the most powerful accusations that's being laid against Paul in his ministry in Corinth has to do with the fact that Paul seems to suffer a lot. People are saying, you know, if Paul was really a faithful minister, why is it that God allows him to suffer so much? Why is he always being imprisoned? Why is he being bullied? Why does he have to work so hard in his ministry? So Paul's been very open with the Corinthians about his suffering, about the the pain that he has to deal with in his ministry, and about the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain him as he ministers. We'll get into this a little bit more as we dig into that middle section, that long list uh, together later this morning. But another theme of 2 Corinthians that's really important for our context, and especially for this immediate context, is the theme of reconciliation. Uh, Paul goes on this, um, he, he writes in chapter 2 about this brother in the, the Corinthian church who has apparently committed some kind of significant sin, and he has been harshly disciplined by the church, and Paul is telling them he has asked for forgiveness, he has repented, it is time to be reconciled to this brother. So that's the sort of the particular context. But then in chapter 5, uh, in the verses that come right before this, Paul has this beautiful passage about the reconciliation that we have with God in Christ about the distance that had been created between us and God because of our sin being eliminated. Sins of people who have come to Christ in faith have been washed clean. I'm going to actually take a second to read the verses that come right before our text this morning. Uh, Because of everything I say this morning, this is the most important thing to take words like this to heart. They're so rich. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That leads us into our text this morning where Paul says in verse 2, Behold, Now is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time. I was on a a long drive earlier this week coming back from a vacation in Virginia Beach, and I was listening to a a podcast about the history of Ireland, which is something I didn't know hardly anything about uh, before listening to this. But one of the most interesting things that this um, Irish professor of history talked about in this podcast was the importance of poets in the history of Ireland. The importance of poets, especially in the the early 20th century uh, movement for independence away from Britain. And these poets were very uh, surprisingly active in their communities and community organizations and even in leading military uh, endeavors. But one of the primary reasons why they were so influential was in the way that they connected their movement to ancient history. At that time, it was very easy for the average person in Dublin, say, to just think that the only version of Ireland that had ever existed was the one under British rule, because it had been so long. 
But what this group of poets were able to do through their poetry was to tap into ancient stories and ancient figures and to write about these things in beautiful ways that captivated the people around them and filled them with this vision of Irish culture and an Irish nation that was totally separate from what they had known under British rule. And so people began to share in this desire for an independent Ireland by connecting with the ancient story of their people. This quote in verse two that we read comes from the book of Isaiah. We also read it earlier uh, in the service. A prophet to the people of God hundreds of years before Christ came and Isaiah and many of the other prophets of the Old Testament are constantly looking forward to this future day. They have their hope in this future day, the day of the Lord, the day of salvation where God would free his people from exile and from bondage. And it was this vision of hope that the people latched onto while they were in exile. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, one of the first things that he does in his ministry is he actually gets up in front of a crowded synagogue on the day of worship. He's handed a scroll from uh, the prophet Isaiah. He reads that scroll before all the people. And this scroll uh, talks about freedom for the captive and good news for the poor and the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolls up the scroll at the end and he says, I'm the fulfillment of this passage. And Paul is doing the same thing here. He's picking up on this way that Jesus uses the prophets by saying that, yes, he is what they were talking about. This is the ultimate fulfillment of this day of the Lord that was to come. Because what Christ did in his death on the cross and in his victory over death and his resurrection is an earth-shattering event. This is the central event of history, Paul says, and Jesus said about himself, it changes the scope of history. It's part of a, a, a long, ancient story of God's redemption for his people. And it has ushered in a new age of human history by building a bridge between heaven and earth, even for lowly, finite, sinful people like us to be able to come into the very presence of God by faith. The day of salvation has arrived, and everyone here is invited to be part of this great story. We're invited to be a part of this story of salvation and we are being urged, we're being pleaded with even. Do not hear the story of God's grace for you and leave unchanged. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. But what does life look like in this age of salvation that Christ has inaugurated? We're gonna look at two things together this morning. Endurance and openness endurance and openness. First, uh, endurance. And if there are any kids still in the sanctuary wondering what that word endurance means, well, you have a really great reminder right up here behind me. Please be patient. God is not finished yet. God will be finished someday. But for now, we endure with hope and with patience, waiting for him to finish the good work that he began So what we have in our text here this morning is one of the, the, the many places where we get a really compact summary of the ministry of Paul. It's a, it's a highlight reel of what happens to him in the book of Acts, if you will. And what God is giving us in this text is the life of a faithful witness. Paul, as an, ambas as an apostle, is an ambassador of the great King Jesus. And his role in the church and his context is obviously very different from ours. But God gives us this example because he wants us to be able to look at this life of Paul to be able to see 
how King Jesus, as he reigns in heaven in this age of salvation, calls and equips his people to endure in faith so that we would be able to see clearly the same way that Paul does, yes, following Christ is worth it. Yes, even though I suffer, even though I am discouraged in this life, God's kingdom is the only place I want to be. Where else can we go to hear the words of life than at the feet of Jesus? As we go through this, uh, this list in verse 4 to 10 together, one thing I want to note up front, our, um, our English translations that we're using this morning, it looks like this by great endurance is just kind of part of the list. It's like the first thing in the list in our text this morning. But really what, what most scholars, as they read this text, they actually separate out that by great endurance. It really operates as a, more of a, a header under which the rest of the list falls, right? And so actually some scholars will uh, translate this verse as something like, um, as servants of God, by great endurance, we commend ourselves in every way. And then he presents this list of afflictions, hardships, calamities, etc. And endurance is such a key theme in the New Testament that theologically it makes sense for, for Paul to be thinking about this this way through the lens of endurance. So what we get here in this long list is a playbook for great endurance for God's people. And this list breaks down nicely into to three sections. In the first verses four and five, we get what it is that Paul endures in his ministry. What is his context? His context is in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. You know, Paul's not shy about the fact that uh, his gospel ministry involves a lot of pain and suffering for him. This is not the good life as most people would define it. It is hard. While some of the, the rival, the false teachers in Corinth think that Paul's suffering is a sign that God must have something against him in his ministry. No, Paul understands that endurance through suffering is how he's going to prove the validity of his ministry. He understands that the power of the gospel is not in avoiding suffering. No, the power of the gospel is in giving a purpose to our pain and suffering. We can break down this list even a little bit more of what we see in verses four to five. So Paul endures through afflictions, hardships, and calamities. So these are just kind of general evils that he sees both in the outside world uh, and in his church context, in his ministry context. Uh, but then we, uh, as we continue to read on, Paul says that he endures through beatings, imprisonments, and riots. So now we get into some of the specific acute things that affect Paul personally in his ministry. These are the kind of things that you read about over and over again in the book of Acts, all the, the ridicule and contempt and violence that Paul faces as he preaches the gospel. But then there's something different, actually, about these last three things in this list in verse 5 that Paul has to endure. Labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. You know, Paul suffered in, in so many ways that were imposed upon him from the outside, but he is also so secure in his reconciliation with God. He is so confident in the gospel and what the work of Christ means for him that he can voluntarily enter into suffering in his ministry. He chooses to labor for the gospel. That's not something imposed upon him. He chooses to sometimes sacrifice sleep for the work that he's doing. 
He chooses to go hungry sometimes on his missionary journeys when he could easily support himself in his tent-making trade if he wanted to. He's so free in the gospel that he can choose to enter into trials knowing full well that it's going to lead to pain for him and suffering. The suffering of Christ on our behalf has earned for us such a freedom to actually enter into the suffering of others in this world, in whatever context we're called to be God's ambassadors, probably very different from Paul's. Whether it's in our families or our jobs or our friendships or ministry within this church, we can be confident in the enduring faithfulness of our Savior as we pursue and endure times of suffering with others. The freedom that we experience in the gospel is the freedom, yes, from the weight of sin and the penalty of death, but it's also the freedom to be able to do hard things for the sake of the gospel. The freedom to be able to have that really hard conversation with a brother or sister who needs to be confronted about something. The freedom to be able to share the gospel with someone in a context where that is extremely strange. The freedom to get uncomfortable with the kind of people that we're in relationship with, to reach out to people in our communities who most people might overlook and to be able to walk alongside them and to minister to them. That first part of the, the list describes what Paul endures in his ministry. Now this next section in verses six to seven is how Paul endures in his ministry. And we'll go through this one pretty quickly. I just want to highlight one thing, that this is the work of God, that Paul endures by the work of God. He says, I have endured as a servant of God by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech, and in the power of God. He describes Christians as ambassadors of Christ the King, emissaries who, who speak a message of reconciliation on behalf of the King. The power of his ethics, of his character, of the way that he lives his life not, lies not in his own strength or his own abilities, but in the Spirit working through him. This is why Paul can have such a rich theology of weakness that we read about throughout the New Testament. It's why sometimes uh, our endurance in this life can look like weakness. Our patience and kindness and love might not look particularly powerful to the watching world, but if we understand that our, our weakness is an avenue for the strength of God to work, that changes how we approach our own weaknesses. Christ humbling himself and taking the form of a servant unleashed a power that the world could not have even imagined. Faithful endurance, marked by the fruit of the Spirit, is not about trying harder or doing more. It is a work of the power of the Holy Spirit. And then that leads us naturally into this, this last section of this long list that we have here, where in verses 8 to 10, we get the result of Paul's endurance. And the way that you view the, the life and the ministry of Paul is going to depend on whether or not you know what to look for, right? I'm not a particularly creative or... Uh, artistic person. So when I try to appreciate a piece of fine art, I will often only notice the very, the most superficial kind of surface level details as I look at this, you know, beautiful painting or sculpture or whatever it may be. But then if I have somebody who's a, you know, a professional 
artist or a professor of art history who was able to look at this to point out things that I never would have noticed, to understand why the artist made the decisions that they did and to understand how that culminates ultimately into this final uh, piece of art. It kind of opens up the way that I see this work of art. If you look at Paul's ministry in a superficial way, just looking at kind of the surface level details, like apparently some people in Corinth are doing, you'll probably only see the dishonor, the punishments, the sorrow, the poverty. But if you have eyes to see the truth of his ministry, you'll see the intimate knowledge that he has of the things of God. The life that he experiences in the faith of death, in the face of death, the spiritual riches beyond counting that he possesses. Paul is urging the Corinthians and he's urging us to embrace the fullness of the gospel, the grace of God on offer, to have eyes to see the truth of God's great plan of salvation and how we fit into it in our own lives. To see Paul and his companions as the faithful ministers that they are, not as imposters. It would have been a lot easier, I think, for Paul to be able to go around preaching a message that people can get out of suffering, to preach a message of, of wealth and a healthy family and career success and a great reputation. But the message that we have in the gospel is actually way more powerful than that message of the good life. The way that the power of the gospel is revealed in Paul's life and in the lives of countless faithful saints is through endurance. Endurance in faith actually shows us more of the fullness of the gospel than living the good life ever could. That's Paul's witness to us. That's our witness to each other. That's how we're called to encourage one another, through endurance and faith. So now let's move into our, uh, our second point this morning, openness. We've been looking at endurance as we consider the life of Paul as it's laid out here. Now we're going to close with this, uh, looking at the openness that we have in this great day of salvation. The Greek that Paul uses in uh, verse 11 is very vivid in the original language, but it gets a little bit softened in our, in our translation into English. But when he talks about speaking freely to them and his heart being open to them, he's saying that he is opening up the deepest part of who he is to them, that he is longing that they would receive the grace of God and live accordingly, that they would be reconciled to God, reconciled to each other, reconciled to Paul. But Paul can also see that there's, they're holding something back. He can tell in his ministry. There are a few occasions in uh, Paul's letters where he talks about the Christian life as the clothes that you wear. He says, put on these things, love, patience, kindness, compassion. Make the fruit of the Spirit, the clothes that you wear, make these qualities how people see you, how the watching world sees you. I was an athlete growing up, and I played pretty much every sport that I could, but especially soccer and basketball through high school and into college. And uh, 15 years later, I still have this recurring nightmare where I'm on the bus headed to a game with my team. And we get there, and all my teammates get off the bus. They grab their bags, go into the locker room, and I realize I don't have any of my stuff. I don't have the right shoes. I don't have my jersey. I don't have any of the things I need to be able to play in this game, and of course, I'm, I'm in a panic. At some point, my coach finds out, gets upset. I start to feel constricted, like I have no idea what to do, and then usually I'll wake up. Some kind of a, yeah, 
some type of a frenzy with my heart racing, but thankful that, thank you, Lord, it was only a dream. It's a terrible feeling to show up somewhere wearing the completely wrong clothes, wearing an outfit that's totally unfit for the occasion. To be a Christian who has been reconciled to God but closes off your heart from your family in Christ, it doesn't make sense. It's like showing up to a a formal wedding in a t-shirt and shorts, inconsistent with the grandeur of what you have been invited to. Paul can tell that they're holding back, that they're not wearing the full spiritual clothing of the gospel. They haven't fully grasped the grace of God that has been given to them. They're restricted somehow in the way that they live out the gospel, in the way that they open up to others. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us uh, understand this feeling that the Corinthians must have, right? We want to close up our hearts. There's a possibility of pain. How many of us have that experience of seeing something that we know we should be doing, but the fear of failure or the failure of embarrassment gets in the way Or maybe it's feeling like there's a a pattern of sin in my life that I really need to address and change, but instead I just constrict myself because I'd rather stay in the comfort of of familiar patterns. In approaching the world like this, we adopt a, a small, safe vision of who Christ is and what the Spirit is capable of. It's a scary thing to open up your heart to people to give them your affections, to be emotionally invested in a relationship with someone. This uh, C.S. Lewis quote came to mind, which if you've been in our PCA circles for a while, you've probably heard this before, but it's so good. He says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. If we open up our hearts at all in this life, we're going to find pain and suffering at some point. At some point, we will experience betrayal. It is inevitable. And the only way to avoid pain is to avoid loving, to avoid giving anyone our affection. Blocking off ourselves and our affections and our love, it's not going to work the way that we think it will. Because this day of salvation that Christ has inaugurated, this, this great age, of reconciliation between God and his people, the grace of God that is on offer that we are being pleaded with to accept. It's a heart reality. It's not just a head reality. It gets to the the deepest parts of who we are. The spirit of God who is at work in you leaves no part of your heart untouched as he does his work. You know, we don't embrace uh, uh, pain or suffering in like a masochistic way, but we do recognize that the heart of my Savior for me is so strong that I can be free from the fear of what pain and suffering might do to me. Because Jesus opened his heart to the people that he came to serve to. And he experienced all of the pain and betrayal as he opened up his heart to his people that we could ever feel, and more. 
He experienced all of the betrayal and pain that we could ever experience in this life. And he had every opportunity to turn around, to return to his father, to leave it all behind. But instead, he looked that pain and suffering in the face. He pressed on. And he said, my bride, the church, is worth it. Because of what he has done, that great age of salvation that he has ushered in, we have the ability, we have the freedom to open up our hearts to whatever might come our way because Christ is worth it. And as we open up our hearts to people in this life with all of the the insecurity, all of the potential pain that comes with it, what we're really doing is preparing our hearts for the day where we stand before God in glory with hearts wide open before him and we are filled with joy, sweet joy, everlasting joy. And now is the favorable time to embrace the grace of God to this sweet salvation that is on offer to us. There's no reason to wait. There's no reason to fear. Now is the day of salvation. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that you do not leave us in our own strength, but that in the power of Christ, you give us the ability through your spirit to endure and even to be open and to be free in our love of others. God, would you drive the the truth of what Christ did for us deep into our hearts this morning and in the week ahead? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.